You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has much to offer in the modern world as it has ever had. In today's episode, we'll be looking at universal credit, what it is, what it's supposed to achieve, the issues it is causing for some of society's most deprived people, and whether it has become universally discredited. With Tory ruptures being played out on WhatsApp, often with the express purpose of it making the next day's newspapers, We'll also be talking about how the instant messaging service has changed how politicians communicate with each other and what it means for organising in a modern political setting. I'm Connor Pope and I'm joined by Rural South MP and Progress Chair Alison McGovern, Progress Director Richard Angel and Newcastle-upon-Tyne North MP Catherine McKinnell. The sight of splits over Europe tearing apart a minority Conservative government may be pleasantly familiar, but one aspect of the current drama is relatively new, the role being played by WhatsApp. Almost every day some leaked messages sent by Tory MPs using the app make the front pages, with journalist Sebastian Payne writing in the FT last week that its prevalence is having a poisonous effect on political discourse. So in political terms, what do you use WhatsApp for? What kind of groups are you in? I'm pleased that we have a couple of politicians with us here today to be able to kind of talk us through actually what people in Westminster do use it for. So Alison, can we start with you? What kind of groups are you in? Well, when WhatsApp appeared on the kind of scene a couple of years ago, I remember sort of being feeling slightly dismissive, thinking, why would I just want another way of texting people? And then it's become clear that actually that kind of the instant way in which you can get people to respond is actually really helpful. It Basically, we do all the same things that we ever did, which is basically like, check, can everybody table this question? Like, so someone will get that question. We do all the things that we used to do, except it's just loads more efficient because we used to like email it around or text it around. And now we just stick it on a WhatsApp group and it just happens a lot faster. I mean, there's loads of like inadvertent sides to it as well. Like, you know, people will share kind of like funny stories and whatever, whatever. And it can be like a little bit, you can get complete WhatsApp overload because, you know, you can just end up like being part of all these groups and like loads of messages and you're like, ah, no. Are you in a lot of groups, Catherine? Yeah, I think it's much more instant. It's much more um, familiar. So I think in terms of 
colleagues that you're in groups with, you do get to know a different side to them because it's much less formal than email and it's much more instant than text messaging. And in practical terms, I don't know why that is, but it just is. It's become a very instant uh, messaging service. I mean, I've had to disable my notifications because there's that many WhatsApp messages that are coming in all the time. I check it more like email, so I go on regularly just to check where all the WhatsApp messaging has got to. But I mean, there, I mean, there's loads of funny things as well when people put messages on the wrong groups. <laughs> um, and hilarity does end to you. <laughs> have you ever done that? Um, no, but I've seen a bit of it done. Um, and I think that is the danger of WhatsApp. If you, Often you get stuff like people's yeah. shopping lists that they were trying to send their <laughs> husband or something like that. And you're like, yeah, or, pi- or pictures of their family that they didn't mean to post. But I think actually that's a really important thing as well, though, that there's that you respect that you're in that group and your communications are meant for the people in that group. And so far, so good in terms of... Um, you know, the messages that we send, that that is respected. And I think that is one of the dangers of WhatsApp, that it's starting to become a little bit leaky in parts. <laughs> I, I got added to a group during the general election, which was about organising leafleting outside of a train station. And obviously, immediately, a million people left the group because they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then it was completely dormant for like several months after the election. And then recently, some people have just started sharing kind of religious youtube videos (laughs) it's got a new life but richard you must use it for kind of all sorts of political organizing i'm sure well politics has slightly sucked the fun out of whatsapp for me because it started as a place that i would like to have chats with potential dates and now my (laughs) politics has just kind of taken it over which is disappointing it i think it was really useful at labor party conference to get messages to our delegates to be able to respond you know, the kind of microchip labour that Momentum led with at conference with their app was so developed, they had their arguments for a a motion, what the possible arguments against would be, and what their rebuttal to that was. And that was light years ahead of us. And we had to do all of that through WhatsApp, the way they were doing it through a public app. So this piece that I saw in the Financial Times last week argued that basically WhatsApp was almost kind of responsible for a kind of worsening political discourse. Because when you look in the newspapers and you see this mad WhatsApp group that has, I think, every single Conservative MP in it, and the way that they talk to each other in there is absolutely disgraceful. And he argued that actually they wouldn't ever talk to each other like that face-to-face. Oh, I'm not so sure. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's symptomatic rather than causal. I think it's, it's where those tensions are being played out. I don't think you can blame WhatsApp as a method of communication because... Um, all the WhatsApp groups I'm in are very convivial and very productive, um, and I wouldn't be in them if I wasn't. But that is the weird thing about WhatsApp, is that you get forcibly put into a group, and then you have to extract yourself if you don't want to be in there. And it's always a very big statement when it's got, you know, so-and-so left the group, <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit awkward. It feels like every couple of months, Home Secretary Amber Rudd is again arguing that uh, we should somehow clamp down on WhatsApp because of, uh, you know, terrorists might be using it. I just wonder if, actually, maybe it's just because she's in the Tory MP WhatsApp group and it's horrible. <laughs> she's like, no one should have to do Regulate that. Regulate this out of existence. I don't want to be in my group, but I can't be the one that's left because people will say I've started a new party. <laughs> but anyway, obviously, we'd love to hear from any listeners about the kind of WhatsApp groups they're in or, you know, funny political WhatsApp mishaps that uh, they might have experienced. Um, Richard, why don't you take us on? We're always keen to hear from you, so please do get in touch. Leave us a review on iTunes or find us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Progress Online, on Facebook with forward slash Progress Labour 
or by emailing us on office at progressonline.org.uk. Send us your thoughts, questions, recommendations, and we'll look to get back to you on the Friday episode where we respond to some of the things that you bring up. Our favourite messages of the week will win a prize. This week it's a copy of Hillary Clinton's memoir, What Happened, where she looks at the election of 2016 and why the result was what it was and how Democrats can prevent it going forward. If you subscribe to this podcast and want to let us know, send us a screenshot by either Twitter, Facebook, email, Instagram, uh, etc. You will get a fight, fight, fight again badge that we have done quoting the wonderful former leader of the party, Hugh Gateskill. The winner of last week's prize, a Centrist Dad t-shirt that Connor is styling for us today and I'm sure we can put a picture out on social media, was iTunes user Sinjin2000. Make sure you email us your address and we'll put one of those t-shirts in the post to you. And just after this break, we'll be talking about universal credit. More than a quarter of this country's total government spending goes on what we would roughly call welfare. That's over £200 billion a year. But as well as making enormous cuts to the welfare budget, the government has also embarked on a massive reform of how this system works called universal credit. To better understand what it is, I spoke to David Finch, a welfare expert and senior economic analyst at the Resolution Foundation think tank, who also worked in the Department for Work and Pensions for eight years. David, thanks for joining us. Can we start with the complete basics here? What is universal credit. So universal credit is um, a radical reform of the working age benefit system. It's combining six of the key benefits, um, that's working tax credit, child tax credit, housing benefits, job seekers allowance, um, and employment support allowance, and income support, all together into a single scheme, rather than the kind of six different ones we have at the moment. Why does the government think that this system is better than the one that it's replacing? There are a number of kind of original aims of universal credit. One of the key ones was to simplify the benefit system. And that's, I think there's there's two main advantages to that. One is that it just makes it simpler for people to claim. They'll have a single point to go to. It's the same information. They don't have to keep on giving um, different variations of very similar information to different types of schemes. But it's also that um, in the kind of current system, it's been found that people can be discouraged from finding work because of the complexity of reclaiming your benefits. So it gets around that big step and sometimes fear that people have of having to um, get a job, then reclaim some of their benefits and think that they're going to lose out from doing so. What have been the issues uh, regarding the rollout of it? Because I think this is what we always hear is that it has been a kind of unmitigated disaster where it has been brought in. Are the problems with universal credit purely in the handling of its implementation? I know that you gave a quote this weekend saying that there is a difference between the implementation challenges and the straightforward design flaws. I wonder if you could kind of explain what that uh, difference is. One of the really key things to understand is that it's just trying to design a single benefit system for so many different types of families and households and people who have their circumstances change so frequently on a kind of month-to-month basis. Um, it's just a really complicated thing to do. So I think it was always going to be tough to design this um, this system. We've obviously seen that the rollout has gone very slowly this month, I think it's actually the month originally back in kind of 2010, 2011, when universal credit was first being set out as a policy idea that is meant to be fully in place. And we're not anywhere near that level. There's only around um, 600,000 people on the system at the moment instead of the kind of up to 7 million families that will eventually be on there. So there's just the, the straightforward fact that it's just a complicated thing to do. I think the second thing 
is that as with any system, you would expect some teething issues where people are maybe getting used to the system. That's the people delivering it, the people claiming it. You don't quite know how it works and you have to start to really see how it works on the ground and then kind of redesign and get around those issues. And some of that is happening. But then there are some more fundamental, just simply um, policy design flaws that are causing problems. We've heard a lot about the six week waits where people are being expected to wait for six weeks with no other income when they first make a claim and that's clearly going to be really hard for a lot of people to get by without for six weeks but if we're talking about people who maybe have absolutely no other source of income um, and have used up if they're moving out of work have already used up what pay they had that's going to be really really tough for them but it goes wider than that there are some unanswered questions there are things like free school meals and how it interacts with other parts of the benefit system that haven't really been resolved yet. So the Resolution Foundation warned about the knock-on effect of free school meals this weekend, I think. What does that mean? What, what's involved in that kind of knock-on effect? can get onto the complicated side of things, but free school meals are essentially, in the current system, you'll, you get your free school meals if you're basically not in work, and then you no longer get that entitlement once you are in work. But the reason you don't feel worse off from from losing them is because the tax credit system gives you this big boost as you start to enter work. And that kind of does actually create a cliff edge so that you're, you have a significant boost to your income once you're working, say, 16 hours as a single parent, but it effectively buys out your free school meals. Now, Universal Credit tried to get rid of those cliff edges because potentially they stop people, they constrain your decisions. So no, there's very few people work less than 16 hours in the current system, um, and that's because your benefits are withdrawn pound, pound for pound in that, in that area. So it would make sense that people don't really work those hours. But in Universal Credit... There's a smoother taper rate and a work allowance to encourage you into those short hours. But then there's also no jumps to compensate for the removal of something like free school meals. So you've got a report coming out later this month on uh, universal credit. Is that out on the October 31st? Is that right? That's right, yeah. Coming out immediately after the half-term recess. And it'll be a refresh of our analysis looking at gainers and losers and also trying to tackle and deal with this um, terrible, the, the complex um, kind of trade-offs between how we best design the system to match the kind of labour market of the future. Great. Thank you for joining us, David. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're joined today by Catherine McKinnell, who is Newcastle North MP and raised exactly this subject with Philip Hammond in the Treasury Select Committee last week. So Catherine, your constituency is... Uh, a pilot for the rollout of universal credit. Can you tell us a bit of your experience of uh, seeing it firsthand? Yeah, so I've been making the case to the government 
for a while not to roll this out any further until they sort out some of the issues with the delivery because we've had it rolled out in Newcastle, the full service, since um, March 2017. And while I support the principle behind universal credit, the rollout has been a complete shambles in Newcastle. It has perhaps doubled the work of my case workers and the work of the local CAB as well. So I did, I got a debate on it back in April and I made the case that the government have to iron out these issues before they roll it out right across the country because in my view they will just roll out misery for thousands and thousands of more people but they seem determined to go ahead regardless. And Alison, can we come to you next because um, you were very annoyed with my introduction of this segment. Well, you did what a lot of people do, which is to say that welfare is over £200 billion a year. That obviously includes the state pension. So it's not as though the thing that we're talking about, which is the subsidy that goes to people of working age, is that amount. And I think there tends to be a bit of a kind of shock horror about that figure. Whereas actually, universal credit encompasses a range of both income replacement benefits, so for people who with disabilities who either can't work or who are, you know, moving towards work, but also the subsidy that is for families to take account of the cost of having children. And and essentially, we either live with child poverty or we have a system that Beveridge designed, which says because of the extra costs you have when your kids are small, you know, you should basically effectively pay negative tax. And I don't think that's a wrong system. I think there's a lot of people who might argue, including some on the left, by the way, that, well, people should be able to, you know, live on their wages and, you know, people shouldn't be expected to claim off of the state. Well, that's fine, but it costs money to have children. And either we say, you know, families, you're on your own, or we say beverage design is actually quite a good system where where we help people out during the times when they need it and they pay back into the system when they're more able to. And what Catherine's described and what really struck me actually when I listened to her talk in Treasury Select Committee was that that principle, there's nothing wrong with that principle. It's one that's been in our system, you know, since the post-war years. The problem is the government have tried to make cuts at the same time as doing something administratively, which is actually quite a radical change that has built within it quite a lot of administrative difficulties for people. So both there'll be people who are getting less money and also there are people who are just having to deal with the government in an administrative way that's a massive hassle for them. And the DWP now has a pretty terrible reputation, to be honest. I would say amongst pretty much all MPs. And is there a a case to be made that part of the issue here is that reform is happening at the same time as these cuts and actually wouldn't have this kind of effect otherwise? I think there are a whole range of issues that are quite specific to this universal credit system. So the government, I think, generally is trying to move to digital by default. But obviously the people that they are expecting to move on to universal credit often don't have access to a computer or they might have quite complicated lives. It's not straightforward. And even the most straightforward cases where people have fixed hours week in, week out, the system is even struggling to cope with actually getting it right for them. But the difficulty is that when the DWP get it wrong or the job centre get it wrong, quite often the staff in the job centre, they've been given an inordinately difficult task of delivering a very complex system and, in my opinion, are not being given the support and the training that they need to actually get it right. So they're giving people incorrect information, incorrect calculations, and then they're expecting people to go online to try and resolve it. It's very hard to speak to a person to try and resolve your issue. 
And if you do, you have to pay 55p a minute on the telephone line in order to do so. And these are the people who literally have nothing and they're using food banks and they're getting themselves into debt on a daily basis for weeks on end just to get the basic level of support that they're entitled to. Catherine, you mentioned the fact that the Citizens Advice Bureau have been overwhelmed with claims. Have they been able to access any additional funding to be able to support people through this change from either the DWP or the local council? Not that I'm aware of. Um, And I've also seen actually housing associations who are investing a significant amount of money. My local housing association, YHN, has invested huge amounts of hours and time to support their tenants to access universal credit. Um, I think they've calculated it's an average of three, three and a half hours of having to spend with every single tenant to, wow. in order to access it. Some, they've got a case of one where it took 100 hours to get the right outcome for this tenant. But the big problem is, is that every day that Universal Credit is rolled out in Newcastle, they are accruing rent arrears. And these are rent arrears as a direct result of Universal Credit. They are not related to anything else. So they've got £1.2 million already since it was rolled out in April. That's just racking up on a day-by-day basis. How are they going to actually correct that? Because the people who have gone into arrears are going to struggle to actually work their way out of that debt. And I think that is a fundamental problem with this universal credit system and one that I put to the Chancellor last week, that they are embedding debt into the system and they are embedding debt into the lives of people who are just about managing, were just about managing, and now are spiralling down into debt. They're borrowing money off friends, off family, off anywhere, or they're just starving, some of them. They're people are really hungry and they're using food banks. And they're to- the government keeps saying, don't worry, we've put in a universal credit advanced system payment, but that only gives 50% of what their calculated entitlement is, and they have to pay it off over the next six months. So it's just pushing those same people into more and more long-term hardship. So... Fundamentally, I believe the government should just stop the rollout until they get this right because they are just rolling out misery. When you asked Philip Hammond about this last week, what was his kind of response? What is their reasoning for kind of keeping going with it? Well, I mean, they're adamant that the principles behind the system are correct, that they support people into work, that they have tried to iron out some of the cliff edges, um, you know, in your piece earlier on. The principles behind universal credit, I, I don't disagree with. It's the way it's being rolled out. It's the efficiencies that they're trying to make at the same time as rolling out a major, major change in our benefit system. And the people who are suffering are the people that need that support and are entitled to that support, that in-work support for an awful lot of people that they're not getting access to, that's then putting them into rent arrears, putting them into debt and pushing them towards food banks. So to be honest, the Chancellor acknowledged that there is a problem with rent arrears. So why the government thinks it's okay to roll that out and roll out effectively rent arrears up and down the country, it's just not a good strategy. When you say efficiencies in system, are they trying to streamline how the benefit is given out and the department, or are they actually just making cuts to the overall budget? I think it's a bit of both. One of the things that I wanted to ask Catherine, I was I was really struck by what you said to the um, to the Chancellor last week about the debt point, because there's two things on on debt for me firstly the rolling out of misery as you said and we know that the top cause of um, relationship breakdown is 
you know, financial problems and the stress that that causes for families. And it's ironic, isn't it, that Ian Duncan Smith, this is effectively his brainchild, isn't it, Universal Credit? And yet he was the one who, you know, was so obsessed with families and the families test and marriage tax allowance. And actually the biggest thing that breaks up marriages is the stress that financial problems cause. So I think firstly, it interests, you know, like you've obviously seen that firsthand. The second thing is, isn't there... Isn't there like a macroeconomic problem with this, given we've already got spiralling personal debt? We've effectively privatised debt in this country. You know, we started off with a big government debt problem, and now we've got a massive personal debt problem, and this is going to make it worse. And I worry about the kind of macroeconomic effect of this, this going you know, any further. Like It's bad enough that it's happened in Newcastle, much less it being spread out across the whole of the UK. Yeah. I mean, the system is designed around debt and the government when they explain and justify it they say that's that's very deliberate we you know we believe in the real world you don't get paid on day one therefore you shouldn't get your credits on day one but who waits six weeks for their first pay packet who on these kind of incomes has to wait not even six weeks which is what the system is designed for but some of them 12 weeks because the system fundamentally doesn't work but even if it was rolling out if the way they intended, six weeks, nobody waits six weeks for their first pay packet. And who, what is that person going to do when they need to feed their children? They need to pay their rent. They're going to look for credit in there's other places. There's nothing else they can do. No. There's literally so, nothing else they and can do. I mean, do. and I've met people, you know, there's nobody that talks about this without getting upset as well, you know, who have borrowed off every single member of their family. They've borrowed off friends. They've gone to the food bank and ultimately when they get their first universal credit payment they have to then pay all those people back and so they're just constantly running to catch up and it's just disastrous and I just think of the kid that grows up in that environment who's wanting to be a good reader and who's wanting to do sports and who's wanting to think about their future and all they're doing is spending their time worrying about their mum or dad or carer or whoever who's who they can see chasing their tail around with debt and I think we are basically building in not just financial problems but stress and mental health problems through this yeah and the timing when they want to roll this out across the country is right before Christmas when there's no more pressure on families um you know who need to provide for their children and try and make what they can of Christmas so I mean it's just double misery Obviously, the Tories are a, a minority government now. So do you see any prospect of kind of cross-party work to actually sort out some of the problems in Parliament? Do you see there being a possibility of that happening? I think I think we definitely would, and I think we've seen where that's happened before. I think there's been some uh, Conservative MPs who I think have felt that they've been able to make a difference, and there have been some noises on that. Um, I, think, I think the difficulty at the moment is that... Um, which is why I feel quite an obligation actually to shout up as loud as I possibly can. Because while some people have experienced universal credit in their area, the most simple of cases are being rolled out. And so people think, oh, well, you know, there are a few teething problems, but it, it's not major. But in those areas where it's been fully rolled out, and there's only three, there's Newcastle, one in Wales, one in the north of Scotland, it's been utterly shambolic and disastrous. And I think if people realised the level of deluge they're going to get in their constituency offices when this is rolled out across the country and I don't mean that from a self-interested perspective the people that you have to support that you are dealing with that need help 
it is heartbreaking and it's life destroying for a lot of them and it's having a major impact on their mental health all the stress and anxiety so I, I definitely think people just need to understand how catastrophic this is going to be if it's rolled out up and down the country and I think on that basis we should hopefully win the argument to get some cross-party support to at least pause it let's not scrap it let's just pause it and get it right but so far it hasn't been rolled out in any uh, constituencies where there is a Conservative MP, is that right? I think that must be true from what yeah, Catherine's just actually, said. Yeah. Yeah. And now uh, I think about it, there's one in Wales, one in the north of Scotland, one in Newcastle, and, as far as I know. And do you know kind of uh, when that might actually start coming into Conservative constituencies? So, what the timescale is? But very soon. So it happens in my constituency in the next uh, month or so. And as Catherine said, we'll start to see that, you know, the first payments are due, like, I think off the top of my head, mm. it's the 14th of December. Now, that literally could not be a worse time, bearing in mind the likelihood of mistakes and people having the stress of Christmas. I mean, Christmas is a wonderful time, but I think we all know in our hearts that financially sometimes it can be a bit stressful. And it, so it couldn't be a worse time from that point of view. And then you've got the added thing of like, well, we're going to have offices closing and, you know, shorter hours and stuff over the Christmas break. So... I think that the government could take quite a simple decision here and at least pause it until the new year because I think that, given the clear evidence that mistakes are being made... And look, the DWP is a department that has got some fantastic people in it, but it's been absolutely degraded over the past seven years and I just don't think they were ever really capable of dealing with a big challenge like this. But, after, but... after the staff cuts that they've had, they've had change after change after change. I think take it a bit more slowly and let's get it right. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're closing job centres as well at the same time. They're closing one in ten. So at a the, at the time when they are massively increasing the burden on the staff in those centres and reducing the number, they're also rolling out the most complex change, I think, I mean, we've ever seen. So it's not fair on the people who need the support. It's not fair on the people who are trying to support them. And it's not fair on the job centre staff either because they're doing their best and they're doing quite a tough job and then, as far as I can tell, they are not being given the support and the training that they need to get it right. And that's the difficulty. They need to get the calculations right. I think with that, we'll leave it there. But th thank you, Catherine, so much for coming in to talk about this with us today. Every Tuesday, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's follow-up extra show. This week, I want to know who is the only person on Jeremy Corbyn's front bench team to have also been a member of the Jim Callaghan government. Send your answers to at Progress Online or at Connor Pope on Twitter or email office at progressonline.org.uk and you could win a fabulous progress book. <laughs> That's all we have time for today. But uh, we've been delighted to have Catherine McKinnell joining us. Thank you so much for coming on, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Me and Richard will be back on Friday to respond to all of your comments and dish out some prizes. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast with me, Alison McGovern, with Richard Angel and Connor Pope. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 